This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, Missouri S&T, one of many universities selected for a ballooning project as they get ready for the next eclipse, which will be happening in October. We'll find out what that's all about. The top dining destinations around Missouri. We'll talk with Missouri Magazine restaurant editor Daniel Pliska to find out the best places. And get those babies taken care of. This is National Infant Immunization Week. Elisa Nelson talks to Dr. Ken Haller, a pediatrician at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis. Immunization of infants is critically important to keeping them from getting life-threatening illnesses. I have, I have been in practice long enough that I have seen some illnesses practically eliminated because in my 40-year career, there have been new vaccines developed to protect against types of meningitis, an overwhelming sepsis, which is overwhelming infection that can kill a child, kill an infant, uh, caused by bacteria like pneumococcus and haemophilus. And of course, there are the vaccines that we've had for a long time uh, against diphtheria, tetanus, a whooping cough, polio. These things were all very common at a certain point in our history. Children died of them all the time. And now serious illness, and death from these diseases is very rare, and that's because of immunization. But just because we have immunization, because we have vaccinated most kids, that doesn't mean these things are gone. They can come back. And sadly, every once in a while at Cardinal Dunn and Children's Hospital in St. Louis, we have kids admitted with things that can be prevented by vaccines, and that is just heartbreaking. Doctor, can you talk about any side effects related, uh, generally speaking, to getting any of these shots as an infant or young child? When kids get vaccines, it's normal for them to perhaps get a little bit of swelling in the area where they got the shot. Young babies, when they get their vaccines, generally get the jab in the thigh. And it might be a little bit swollen, a little bit tender. That's easy enough to take care of by taking the washcloth, soaking it in cold water, wringing out, folding it up, putting that over the area for the off and on for the first 24 hours, maybe giving some Tylenol if there's a little bit of a fever. When these things happen, it shows that the body is actually making a robust response to the vaccine and is starting to create an immune response that will keep the baby from getting this disease. So these sorts of reactions are completely normal. They're part of the immunological process of creating and uh, creating an immunity against a life-threatening illness. Getting the immunizations, then, do you feel are um, they they trump any sort of um, side effects uh, to getting the immunizations? Then I've been in practice for over forty years now. I have never seen a child admitted to the hospital because they had a serious side effect to a vaccine. Unfortunately, I have seen hundreds of kids who've gotten admitted to the hospital because they had infections that could have been prevented by vaccines. And those hospitalizations could have been prevented by getting vaccines, by getting vaccines on time. And that is the most important thing. The side effects are minimal. They are easily managed. They're part of the process of vaccinating a child and getting them to build up a robust immunity against the bacteria and viruses out there that can cause life-threatening illness. 
Now, do Missouri doctors, do they inform patients when it's time, um, or parents rather, when it's time for mm-hmm. the uh, infants, the young children to get their shots? I'm just wondering like, how parents can ensure that their children receive all the recommended vaccines on schedule. Oh, sure. There are a number of places that uh, the parents can go. First of all, their pediatrician or their family practitioner. If you go to uh, your doctor for for your child in uh, in the state of Missouri, and I, I hope that anywhere in the United States, they're going to give you a roadmap of when your child is going to get their routine vaccines. And those are generally at two months, four months, and six months. And then uh, again at uh, 12 months, 15 months, and 18 months. And then again at age four. There are a lot of vaccines given at that time. And while it may seem like a lot, the good thing is that that means that we can prevent a lot more illnesses than we used to. People can go to uh, the Missouri Immunization Coalition website at moimmunize.org and find all of the shots listed there, find all of the vaccines and what they do. And, uh, you know, this is uh, one of the most important things that that doctors uh, who take care of children, either pediatricians or family practitioners do to take care of children is to prevent illness. We want to make sure the kids do not get sick. And that's why we are so, you know, so really uh, uh, excited and and pleased to give kids vaccines. They don't get illnesses that could land them in the hospital or worse. You might repeat here some of what you have already said, but I will um, ask this for the sake of asking, just in case there's anything Mm -hmm. else that you say that might be a little different. But what can happen if children do not stay on track with their routine vaccinations? Well, if kids don't stay on track with their routine vaccinations, it allows more time for life-threatening infections to happen. And unfortunately, during the COVID pandemic, A lot of kids, uh, because it was harder to get to the doctor, did kind of fall off the uh, fall off the schedule of routine vaccinations. And and so we have seen not just at SSM Health Cardinal Glenn Children's Hospital, but at children's hospitals across the state of Missouri, more kids coming in with and getting admitted with things like pertussis, also known as whooping cough, with uh, other uh, preventable illnesses with meningitis caused by hemophilus or or pneumococcus. And, and that's because they have not gotten the vaccines they need. We give these vaccines early at ages two months, four months, and six months to build up full immunity because that's the age when kids are most vulnerable to these, to these illnesses and infections. The younger a child is who gets an infection with something like pneumococcus or hemophilus influenza B, the more likely it is they're going to get very, very sick with it with a deep infection that goes into their blood, that goes into their brain, that can cause lifelong disability. So, so the most important thing you can do is get your kids on time at the recommended times uh, with the schedule that's put out by the Centers for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians. This is the most important thing you can do to prevent your child from getting a life-threatening illness. National Infant Immunization Week is April 24th through the 30th. Dr. Ken Howler joins Show Me Today to talk about this effort. He's a pediatrician at SSM Health, Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis. I'm Elisa Nelson. So uh, what is the role of 
herd immunity in protecting infants and young children who are too young to be vaccinated? That's a great question. One of the things that uh, we want to do is to make sure that as many people as possible are immunized against bad infections, uh, you know, in the community, because, uh, again, in a child under two months, they are not yet eligible for vaccination. So one of the things when I see uh, when I see new moms in the nursery, you know, who just had a baby, I will say what's really important now is to make sure that everyone at home is vaccinated against things like whooping cough, like flu, like COVID, to make sure that that these illnesses, which children are not eligible to get vaccines for at that point at birth, you know, that they have a zone of protection around them so that people are not bringing these illnesses, these infections home to cause disease in the child. And the thing is, the more people who who get vaccinated, the more people who are immune to various infections, the less likely it is to pass from person to person. If you had a that you know, if you had a, a, a tray with a hundred golf balls on it, and you had um, thirty of them that were marked blue, that means you would have seventy that are not. And if the blue are the kids who were vaccinated, those seventy others who are not vaccinated are going to be in touch with one another and likely to spread it. On the other hand, if you had ninety-five of those golf balls that are colored blue and only five that are that are still white. Those five are unlikely to come in contact with each other. And so that way, if one of those kids gets sick, the others won't get sick, even if they're not vaccinated. And finally, the reason is that that there are some kids who, for various reasons, because of their immune system, may not be eligible for certain vaccines. And so, you know, one of the things we can do as a community, because we care not just about our own kids, but about everyone's child, is to make sure that that children who cannot get vaccines are not going to be exposed to these infections. So if we're vaccinating our own child, we're not just protecting our own child, but we're protecting those other kids who might not be able to get a vaccine for some reason. And, you know, that's what friends are for. Obviously, there's there is a fraction of the population who is opposed to vaccinations for children. I'm curious, mm-hmm. since the pandemic, how has the pandemic included the the hesitancy? Um, has has that level of opposition? Do you feel like it's increased whatsoever, Doctor? I think that you know. I mean, there's studies going on with this. I think that uh, it perhaps has had some. Uh, effect of, of causing people to, to you know, maybe not get their kids vaccinated. On the other hand, and this is just anecdotal, I've had some people who have come in and said because they've heard so much about COVID and they don't want their kids to get sick, they want to get themselves vaccinated and make sure their children are vaccinated against everything because it's made it clear that infectious diseases are out there and can cause really, really bad illness. And they want to make sure that, you know, that their kids don't get infected. Okay, so I I think about kids at daycare, you know, they're sticking their fingers and their Uh nose and then touching others and spreading germs and all that. And is there a requirement in Missouri to have certain vaccinations like prior to going to daycare or kindergarten, that kind of thing? The Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services does have some uh, regulations about licensed daycare centers 
about schools, things like that, that kids need to have certain vaccines to, to enter these, these places. People can get exceptions for various reasons, usually medical reasons. But, uh, you know, we, we hope that people will get their kids vaccinated, uh, not just because the law says so, but because it's the most important thing they can do for their kids. All right. Dr. Ken Haller, he's a pediatrician at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis. And don't forget, this week is National Infant Immunization Week. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now, that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, and today we're going to talk about dining destinations around the state and how to find the best places to go. 
And for that, we turn to Daniel Pliska. He's a food writer for Missouri Life magazine. He's also, uh, as he describes, the savory food chef and instructor at Ozarks Technical Community College in Springfield. And uh, before that, Daniel, you were the executive chef and assistant manager at the University Club of MU, correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Well, welcome. Great to have you here. That's good to be with you. Yeah. Hey, from a chef's perspective, uh, when we're traveling to a new town or maybe even our own town, we're just trying to find something uh, different, um, a place to eat. Um, What should we look for? What do you look for in restaurants determining whether or not it's a good place to try? And is it different than, uh, than an ordinary person like me? Well... I guess that depends on on what your what kind of food you want to eat, but I like to stay away from a lot of the chain restaurants if possible. Uh, some people like the chain restaurants and they have their place because people are certain they know what kind of food you're going to get in a certain chain, and so it's going to be consistent with what they've had in the past. But if you want to try something different and something more. Uh, specialized, you should probably try to do a little research before you get to the town you're going to uh, online or talk to your friends or uh, something like that. And then look for restaurants that are, you know, more standalones or part of a unique, unique restaurant group, if you will. What's the criteria you use for evaluating restaurants? Uh, well, for writing for the magazine, I like to focus uh, uh, on Missouri restaurants that I feel uh, one of these one of these four different areas. So one of them is, would be top of its class. In other words, if it's a seafood restaurant or a steakhouse or a barbecue restaurant, that it's that's the top of its class. And I've either been there or it's been recommended to me by one of my chef friends or one of my foodie friends. Or possibly it's a historical restaurant, so it has a long history. Uh, you know, I love the history and all the history that's, that's happened and things that have happened in Missouri. And I think there's a lot of historical sites that have been turned into restaurants and have a lot of long history with them. And then another one is unique. So if a restaurant is unique and, and does some different things uh, than, than you can normally find, I like to kind of focus on that. Or the last one would be like underrepresented in your class, if you know what I mean. So if it's like a Korean restaurant or maybe a Thai restaurant, I'm I'm looking into an Indian restaurant now because there there's you know a number of ethnic restaurants out there, but I think they're often underrepresented in the in the overall restaurant scene and media. Daniel Pliska is a food editor for Missouri Life magazine, joining us here on Show Me Today, talking about uh, dining destinations in Missouri. How, how do restaurants achieve top of the class? Explain that. Uh, top of its class means they're very, very focused on just serving the most um, basically well-prepared food from the finest ingredients in the most unique and artistic ways. So they, that's, that's usually uh, telltale signs as if they've won awards. So, uh, uh, you know, specific awards might be James Beard Awards, might be Michelin stars, might be, uh, you know, uh, hotel restaurant type stars or recommendations. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a chef and uh, I work with a lot of different chefs in, in the state and, and in, in regionally. And, uh, so we 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 understand where good restaurants are and where the chefs are and and uh, we know which ones are doing. <laughs> we have kind of an inside scoop, if you will, Bill, yeah. <laughs> on which ones are doing the really good food. You know, where they're really po- paying attention to the best food and best service that they can provide. Daniel, you talked about uh, avoiding chains because 
you know, you, you kind of know what you're going to get and, and there is that consistency level or at least uh, uh, being familiar with it. But uh, when it comes to finding consistently good food time and time again, um, f- for me, my perception is family owned restaurants that have been around for years is a good way to go because if they've been around for years, they must be doing what they're doing right. And then the recipes are passed down from generation to generation. Is that a good perception on my part or is that off? No, you, you hit it right on there, but right, right on. It's, it's a place that's been open for a long time and it's stood the test of time. Well, it's probably because they've got a good product and it's a consistent product and they built up their base and their reputation. So unless something, you know, calamitous has happened, like maybe their their chef left or something like that, you know, right when you came or, or something like that, uh, then you can pretty much bank on what you just what you just stated. And uh, don't get me wrong, the, the change, you know, they have a place. Like I said, if you're traveling, you don't know any, and you're in a hurry and you're passing through a town, there's not a lot of options. And you, you may see a chain that you like and you know their kind of food, so you know it's going to be consistent uh, to what you've had in another one of their chain establishments. But if you're going to dine out specifically for like a dining as a destination or you're on vacation, you have some time and you want to try some different foods or some, some uh, you know, splurge and kind of break the budget, if you will, and go to a really top class uh, restaurant, white tablecloth restaurant, if you will, then you want to do a little research and maybe stay away from most of the chains. Daniel Pliska, food editor for Missouri Life magazine. Um, you know, we talk about St. Louis, Kansas City, uh, the big cities. Uh, people ask you for recommendations. How do you point them in the right direction? I mean, let's say that somebody's never been to St. Louis before. They've never been to Missouri. Uh, what do you tell those people? Hey, this is what you should try if you want to get a, a flair of what St. Louis is, is all about. Can you narrow it down that simple? Uh, well, that's a little bit of a complicated question because, you know, in the bigger cities, you're going to have a lot more restaurants, and that's fantastic because there's always changing. And there's some areas that kind of stay, you know, true to their roots, but there are, you know, other areas that are co- up and coming. Uh, so you, you have to kind of, you know, look at that. So St. Louis, you know, if you were going to go, if you wanted to uh, go to like uh, the Hill or, or West End or some places out in Chesterfield or, or some of the more affluent areas, you can, you can pretty much bank on finding some, some nice restaurants in those, in those areas. Uh, but you have to, and when you're moving, whenever you go into a larger city, you have to be aware too of your, your surroundings. And it's unfortunate these days where we have to watch out where we're going. So you want to make sure you're going somewhere that's a safe, a safe, uh, safe area to be at as well. Uh, and like I said, there, there's, there's some areas uh, that, you know, chefs, especially up and coming chefs, they, they may not have the budget to afford to be in a very affluent neighborhood. So sometimes they go in more marginalized neighborhoods and start there. And so you can find some good dining establishments there too, if you do your research. Yeah. What is St. Louis known for? I, I think of ravioli, but it's got to be more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, there's toasted ravioli, is what you're talking about, which is a very unique dish if you think about it, you know, uh, toasted ravioli. But they're also known for a lot of other dishes, you know, and a lot of different kinds. There's a lot of ethnic cuisines uh, in, in St. Louis. You know, most recently I was looking at a lot of different Mediterranean restaurants up there and Albanian restaurants that have just opened. A lot of fine dining because they have a lot of history there. So you, I, did, I wrote an article about 801 Fish, which is a uh, rated the top seafood restaurant in, in Missouri uh, not too long ago. Uh, so they have great, great seafood there because it's close to uh, Chicago, which is a hub for uh, a lot of seafood. You wouldn't think so, but they have a lot of good seafood. Uh, obviously, Italian food because of, uh, of the Italian uh, 
uh, ethnic groups that settled there, you know, in past uh, past times. Uh, those are still very popular in St. Louis. So, uh, and then the Midwestern fare. Midwestern fare is a lot different than the foods on the coast often because we we in the Midwest, you know, we we like we like our uh, our, our food to be plentiful and to be you know uh, robust and to have a good portion. So you'll see uh, you know a lot of you know good good types of food like that. Uh, farm to table, some great farm to table type restaurants in St. Louis as well. Daniel Pliska, food editor with Missouri Life Magazine, with us here on Show Me Today. The NFL draft this weekend in Kansas City, a huge crowds. Um, for people going there, they're going to be outside, they're going to be standing for a while, probably spending the weekend in Kansas City. Any recommendations? Uh, Kansas City is a great, a great uh, food town as well. You know, uh, I like a lot of the things down uh, by the uh, what they call the Crossroads area, the plaza. Uh, downtown, there's a farmer's market downtown. Uh, there's a rail, uh, basically it's free. It goes all the way from, uh, uh the plaza all the way down to, uh, the, uh, the farmer's market or the river bottoms, they call that. And all along there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great restaurants. Uh, uh, I just wrote one not too long ago about, uh, a, a very nice German restaurant called, uh, Affair, which is 20th in Maine. Uh, Extra Virgin is there as well. Uh, Union Station has uh, some some good restaurants. The Plaza is a very unique shopping area, and some great restaurants in there as well. Westport. Uh, my last article was about a restaurant in Westport, a French uh, bistro. It's uh, very very good uh, in Westport called Westport Cafe. Uh, that's a, a very nice place to go. So there's a, gr- a lot of great restaurants that aren't too far from where uh, you know the sports is, the sports areas are. So when my uh, daughter was going to school in Kansas City, uh, she lived near Westport. I was surprised at uh, the number of restaurants and different different restaurants that were in the Westport area. That's a neat neighborhood. Yes, it sure is, and that's a that's known for its nightlife. So there's a lot of. Uh, you know, more more places stay open uh, later at night. You know, for the the people that are want to take in a show or want to go out uh, uh, and catch a movie or whatever, and be out later at night to go go back in that area and they stay open later there. So, uh, and it's kind of in between the plaza and then Union Station, and then becomes the uh, if you if you're going down towards the river, Twentieth uh, and Main, which is there's a lot of great, great. There's three really good restaurants right on the corner of Twentieth and Main. Then you hit the uh, Electric uh, Electric Light uh, District, and there's some good restaurants there. And you'll see a lot of people watching games there uh, because that's a big uh, <clears throat> outside restaurant place and. Uh, uh, they, they have a lot of big parties, street parties, if you will, there as well. Then continue down, you'll come to the farmer's market or the river bottoms area, and there's, some, there's a few restaurants down there as well. Again, there's a lot of them always changing, some of the smaller ones. Uh, but to, just do a little research, you do some search, uh, but those areas I, I highly recommend. Daniel Pliska will have your mouth watering as you read his articles at MissouriLife.com. Uh, check it out and get some great restaurant recommendations. Daniel, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure there, Bill, and uh, just keep on dining and let's support those restaurants out there because uh, we have some of the best ones in in the country here in Missouri. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our our roads. It's It's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. 
If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Back on Show Me Today, Kratom, you may not know what it is, but those who have used it swear by it. Last year, a bill establishing Kratom regulations passed, but then was vetoed by Governor Mike Parson. Republican Representative Phil Cristofanelli looks to get his bill passed once again. Kratom is an herbal supplement that grows on the trees uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, and it's uh, derived from the leaves of those trees, and it's... Uh, 
consumed primarily in pill form, so it's ground up and put into little pills, uh, and people purportedly uh, take it for two primary effects. It has a mild stimulant effect similar to coffee. Uh, it's actually a member of the coffee family, and uh, it uh, provides mild pain relief. So if you have chronic aches and pains, people often take uh, Kratom to relieve uh, their chronic aches and pains. And so it is sold in uh, stores all across the state of Missouri. As you're driving down the highway, if you look up at the signs, you'll see Kratom signs all over the place. Uh, it's very easy to find, uh, but uh, it's completely uh, unregulated. Uh, there's no consumer protections in place such that those buying Kratom know that they're buying things that are pure Kratom. They don't know how the active ingredient is. Uh, they don't know uh, whether it's been adulterated in any way. Uh, and there's nothing that would prevent the convenience stores from selling Kratom to uh, minors. Uh, and uh, we really want to provide a basic regulatory framework to make sure that uh, the people consuming Kratom are, are doing so in a way that is, is safe uh, and appropriate. And so that's, uh, in summary, what my bill does and, and why I've offered it now for five years. Following up to that, so uh, obviously creating regulatory framework of this, not um, a, not in a way of, I guess, creating red tape, more of putting this in a way to make sure minors can't get their hands on it, and also, um, I think, uh, providing some sort of product labels to ensure that it is safe to use and, and things like that? That's right. We want people to know what they're buying. Uh, we want things that are sold in the marketplace that say they're Kratom to actually be 100% pure Kratom. Uh, and we want to make sure that, that only adults are using this. And so my bill is very simple. It's only a couple pages long. It uh, puts that framework in place. And this is very similar uh, to the law in, uh, that's been passed at the local level, both in my county, St. Charles County, uh, and uh, St. Louis County, uh, as well as several other municipalities and, and local governments across the state that have looked at uh, what do we do with this substance. I guess sort of as a comparison for those not necessarily familiar with what it is, I would almost kind of compare it, uh, compare it to marijuana, not in that it should be regulated like marijuana or, or things like that or be declared uh, federally illegal, but I would say in terms of its uses and its benefits, uh, you could make an argument to say that there are some similarities, right? Uh, I wouldn't actually make that argument. I would say that it's very, very different uh, than marijuana. Marijuana has a deleterious effect, and so uh, people use it for recreational purposes. They use it to um, intoxicate themselves. Uh, it uh, it makes the mind uh, altered. It pr produces an altered mental state. Uh, kratom does none of those things, uh, and so um, I would I would you know reject any any comparison to marijuana. Really. Um, the, the primary user of Kratom uh, is um, adults between the ages of 40 and 60, uh, and uh, its its number one use is for mild pain relief. There's really no recreational use uh, for Kratom tablets. Um, there is a subset of people who formerly were addicted 
to um, opioid-style drugs, and they take Kratom uh, because they purport it to relieve their cravings for uh, opiates uh, because it does stimulate part of the brain uh, that uh, in allows for pain relief. And so um, we've had those individuals uh, testify in committee that, that uh, Kratom has helped them wean themselves off of, of dangerous drugs, but it is not an intoxicant, uh, and uh, people don't take it uh, for fun. Um, it's typically taken uh, for uh, those, those uses that I discussed previously. I'm glad you actually brought that up because I was actually reading like maybe a year or so ago um, how there are some medical outlets like, say, uh, the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, things like that. Uh, not going so far as to say you shouldn't use it, but they're basically saying um, that they were essentially labeling it as unsafe in terms of how uh, you can't necessarily OD on it, but more of uh, how much you could use would depend on its effect on the human body. Uh, certainly, like any substance, um, there's you know uh, an amount that you can consume that's that's too much. That's that's certainly uh, the case for caffeine. It's certainly the case for for nicotine and and a number of other um, you know uh, things that we tolerate in in society. Um, right now, uh, it is it is uh, not a scheduled drug by the Federal Drug Administration. Uh, the Federal Drug Administration has looked at scheduling uh, Kratom in the past, uh, but that received uh, vigorous opposition from members of Congress uh, and people across uh, the community that consume this project, and it has uh, the attempts to, to schedule the drug have uh, roundly failed. Uh, the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency has a, uh, a group that uh, studies uh, addictive drugs and has not uh, found Kratom to meet the criteria for scheduling. Uh, and um, so right now it is legal to be sold uh, all across the United States. Uh, but still, uh, I believe that there needs to be certain protections in place for people that, that want to buy it couple more questions here. We're talking with Republican Representative Phil Christfinelli of St. Peter's on his Kratom bill. Let's follow up on what happened last summer. It was vetoed by the governor. Correct me if I'm wrong. It did obviously pass the state legislature, so it does seem to have a, a great deal of support. Any reason as to why? Um, obviously, now that you kind of have to start from square one again. Yes, that was quite frustrating. Uh, the Kratom bill uh, enjoyed almost universal support in the House and Senate. It was a very well-vetted piece of legislation. We'd probably had over 10 committee hearings on it. Uh, never in a committee hearing did anyone ever testify in opposition. Never did any department uh, suggest that there was a problem. Um, you know, it's it's since come to light that apparently the Department of Health and uh, Human Services uh, has uh, come to the conclusion that uh, the bill would jeopardize their access to certain federal grants from the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, we're trying to track down uh, the 
veracity and, and, and source of, of those claims. Uh, there are over 10 states uh, at this point that have passed the Kratom Consumer Protection Act, uh, and as I've mentioned, it's it's already the law in, in my county and, and many of our major politan uh, centers, and, uh, you know, the sky didn't fall. They didn't uh, close all the, the federal grants in those states, and so it's really hard for me to understand the department's position, but we are trying to work through that with them uh, and hopefully find a way to draft the bill uh, in such a way that it, it, it addresses their concerns. Final question, and I'll let you go. I want to be respective of your time. Let's say, uh, hypothetically, this passes the state legislature again, receives near-unanimous support, and it does then get vetoed by the governor again. Any uh, possible plan of maybe overturning that this time around? Uh, I have never seen the uh, legislature in my seven years here uh, override a Republican governor, and so I don't um, believe that that would be likely. Uh, I, it's my hope to work with you know the administration and the various departments to try to find a version of this bill that uh, is palatable uh, and uh, you know does the important th work of protecting consumers and uh, keeping kratom out of the hands of, of people that shouldn't be in possession of it. So it's House Bill 912. You can keep up with the latest movement on that piece of legislation and every other type of legislation in the Missouri House of Representatives at house.mo.gov and just search the bill number specifically. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Meet Keith, loving dad, board game champ, bus driving pro. I drive 65,000 miles in my bus each year. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. Like how there are some things I simply can't see. On my route the other day, a car tried to sneak past me and ends up right in my blind spot. I turned slowly, so I accidentally avoided it. But no car should be in the blind spot for a 40,000-pound bus. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? 
If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the Voice of Missouri, an annular and total eclipse occurring in October of this year and then next April. And to help collect data, Missouri S&T is taking part in a nationwide ballooning project. Cameron Connor is here with Dr. Jillian Schmidt. So the Nationwide Eclipse Ballooning Project is a collaboration between about 55 different schools who are going to send up balloon experiments, high-altitude balloon experiments, during the two upcoming eclipses, the first being the annular eclipse in October 2023, and the second being the total solar eclipse um, in April of 2024. And there are two types of teams. We're an engineering track team, so our goal during this eclipse will be to live stream footage of the eclipse um, to a NASA website, and by collaborating with other teams doing the same thing, we hope to have some really nice coverage as the eclipse path progresses of what that looks like that people can watch at home on their own on their computer. And just to get that correct, so you said the 2023 is going to be, I think you said annular. So does that mean like not total coverage and then the total one in 2024 would mean complete coverage of the sun? Yep, that's right. So for the annular eclipse, the moon will pass between the Earth and the sun. um, But due to the positioning, the diameter of the moon will be a little bit smaller than the sun. So we'll get kind of a ring rather than total obstruction like we'll see in April 2024. Missouri S&T's Dr. Jillian Schmidt. She is an associate professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Missouri S&T. We've been talking about the nationwide eclipse ballooning project and Missouri S&T's involvement with it. This is no ordinary balloon. You know, this thing has to go all the way up to 120,000 feet. Like you said, there's going to be streaming going on from it. So what actually all goes into the process of planning and making sure that this thing can withstand, you know, heights of up to 120,000 feet? So you're correct. These are these are not your regular party balloon. Um, they're latex weather balloons, you know, similar to what's used for weather monitoring. Um, they can handle very low temperatures, which they'll experience as they go up to that high altitude. And they're very large. Some of the balloons that we've launched for other missions um, have gotten up to about 13 yards in diameter before they burst. So they're very large balloons. Um, we have to work with the FAA to clear these balloon flights because they are going up through the altitudes where planes are flying. So we have to be in touch with the FAA throughout this process. Um, another challenge is tracking them. Um, we actually track the balloon throughout the entire flight so we can go collect any additional data and our equipment back at the end. Um, so it's, it's really quite a process to get the balloon, um, have a you know specific type of balloon filled out with helium, and then track and make sure we're safe and notifying the FAA through through the entire flight. Okay, great stuff. And you speak about collecting data. What data are you exactly collecting for these eclipses? So for this eclipse, we'll primarily be doing the live video streaming data. However, there's a separate side of this project where about half of the schools will be sending up smaller balloons on the hour every hour um, to look at changes in some uh, atmospheric phenomena. So um, there are a couple different experiments they're trying to work on. Um, I'm sure they'll be monitoring things like, um, you know, temperature, 
perhaps radiation, um, you know, changes in compounds in the atmosphere during, you know, before, during, and after the eclipse. Uh, but we primarily will just be trying to get that video streaming. We'll have, you know, temperature and pressure sensors and other things to help us localize where the balloon is in the atmosphere. But primarily the data we'll be getting is video for this. But I guess, can you go into a little bit more detail about what the overall plan is like for yourself and your student team? So we're just forming our student team now. Um, we'll have about 10 to 12 students working on this project starting the first week of the semester here coming up in January. Um, we'll be working through the spring semester doing some general training. None of these students have done anything like this before. Um, so we'll be learning just about eclipses and ballooning in general and doing some practice missions through the spring. In May, the uh, team mentors, myself and one other faculty member, will be going to a training where we learn about the specific equipment that we will be flying. We'll bring that equipment back, and then we'll spend the summer building our ground station, building and testing our payloads, and doing a couple more practice flights. Missouri S&T's Dr. Jillian Schmidt. She is an associate professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Missouri S&T. We've been talking about the nationwide eclipse ballooning project and Missouri S&T's involvement with it. Okay, I think you just answered that question there, but just to get a little bit more clarification, the, the reason you're traveling to Albuquerque, is that just because of your affiliation with other past students there, or is it because like that's the optimal viewing angle? So the path of the eclipse uh, stretches. We want to be in as much totality as we can. I believe it's April of 2024 when the total eclipse is. Where, where will you be then? For that eclipse, we're looking to go to Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So that one comes right, right close to where we are. We won't have to travel as far. The path comes right through the southeast corner of Missouri. So probably Cape Girardeau is where we'll be basing our team for that one. Fantastic. And to wrap this up, you said that you will be live streaming the the, the video data. Is there going to be an area where people can watch alongside with you all? At this time, we haven't made any um, concrete plans for what the Eclipse Day will look like, but we have been encouraged to um, host some Eclipse-related events. So we're hoping to get that started, have um, some of our students get started on coordinating that as well, um, especially the one in Cape Girardeau where we're close to campus and we you know, are, are closer in our region here. We'd love to get people involved to come watch the launch, um, you know, be part of the live streaming and really participate in this you know, pretty rare event. We won't have another one of these for, I believe, about 20 years um, to the next total solar eclipse after this. So we're hoping to get as many people involved in that day as we can. Fantastic stuff. Jillian, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the overall process, about being selected by the Nationwide Eclipse Ballooning Project, or anything of the sort? I think that about covers it. We're really excited to get started on this. I went to the um, eclipse in 2017, just watched it myself without a balloon, um, and it was such an exciting experience there. So I'm really excited to take a bunch of students and be involved in this um, in 2023 and 2024. Great. Well, this is Missouri S&T's Dr. Jillian Schmidt. She is an associate professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Missouri S&T. We've been talking about the nationwide eclipse ballooning project and Missouri S&T's involvement with it. Jillian, thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Show Me Today.